Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. This is the word of God. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So you bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we uh, are so thankful for this word that we have from Jesus this morning as he concludes his Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Father, we pray that you would just again, as always, open the eyes of our hearts that we might be able to, to see Jesus more clearly, to understand more deeply what it is to be a citizen of the kingdom, of your kingdom. And then, Father, equip us by your Holy Spirit to go do those things that are in keeping with kingdom life. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. In 2018, Hurricane Michael struck the Florida panhandle. It was the first Category 5 hurricane to hit the, the, the United States since 1992 when Hurricane Andrew hit. The devastation was really quite unbelievable. In, in the, near, near the eye of the storm, there were 45,000 buildings that were damaged, including 1,500 buildings that were completely destroyed. The eye of the storm passed just to the west of Mexico City, or Mexico Beach, which is very close to, to Panama City and Panama Beach. And in that particular little area, there are about 1,700 structures, 1,600 of them were damaged, and no less than 809 were completely destroyed by this hurricane. They estimate that the, the value of buildings lost and, and, and lives, of course not lives lost, but uh, there were a number of lives lost, but the, the dollar amount of uh, the buildings and, and other infrastructure lost was $25 billion with a B. So a significant loss. There were homes that were literally just wiped off of their foundation. Homes where there'd still be stairs standing, but stairs going to nowhere. There was no house there anymore. These kinds of storms in some ways aren't really that peculiar. They do come, again, 1992 in the grand scheme of things really isn't that long ago, but these kinds of storms, they do come. And Jesus knows when he concludes his Sermon on the Mount, he knows that we are also going to face significant storms in our own life. And so as he concludes his Sermon on the Mount, he wants to give us some tools, some ways to think about how we might be able to weather that storm. And that's why we've got in your outline this morning, what he gives us are three warnings in a word picture. Three warnings in a word picture. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, here we are at the end of Jesus' sermon 
where he's really given us a lot of instruction about what kingdom life looks like and how to be a citizen of the kingdom. But at the end, he gives us these warnings. It reminds me, for anybody that's been unfortunate enough to have to build a piece of Ikea furniture, you know, at the beginning of that, that instruction manual, you see the little, like, androgynous human person cartoon thing that's kind of shaped like this. It's supposed to represent you as you go about building this piece. And, you know, points, you know, put the, put the nail here, do this thing here. And I'm, I'm sure this has never happened to you. You're 10 steps into it and realize that you completely did it the opposite of what you were instructed to do. But at the end of the instruction manual, there are always warnings, right? If you're building a dresser, the warning says, hey, you need to anchor this thing into the wall because otherwise you're going to end up flattened like this androgynous human cartoon thing. And so it's the same kind of thing. He's given us this instruction manual. Now, it's not a, a prescriptive list of to-dos and, and don'ts, but it is sort of a set of principles by which we need to, to live in his kingdom. And at the end of this, this set of principles for kingdom life, he gives us these warnings. And these three, these three warnings are in your outline there. The first one is this, beware the easy way. The second one is beware tickled ears, not pickled ears, tickled ears. And then lastly, beware empty works. So let's, let's take a look then at each one of these very briefly because um, I think the real thrust of uh, our time this morning, I really want to spend on, on the passage that Jay read to you from uh, verses 24 through 27. But let's look at these three warnings very briefly. First, beware the easy way. Jesus says in verses 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You may remember those who are uh, maybe my generation and older, you may remember the uh, office store Staples. And, and Staples' deal was that, uh, hey, if, we, if you let us take care of all of your office needs, it will be as easy as pressing this little, little red button that says, that was easy. You guys remember that? That was easy. We had one of those in the office for a long time. The thing is, with the kingdom life, there's no easy button, Right? Jesus says the easy way, the wide gate leads to destruction, but the narrow gate and the hard way is actually the one that leads to life. So then you have to ask the question, what's the narrow gate? What's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about himself, of course, right? Jesus says from John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then what does he say after that? No one. There's no other way. No one comes to the Father except through me. And what he means when he says come to the Father, he doesn't use like terminology that you might think of, uh, we might refer to here often in the church of, you know, no one has eternal life. But that's what he means when he says no one comes to the Father because eternal life in the new heavens, in the new earth, will be reunited with the Father. Like we were in the garden in Adam and Eve before they sinned. So that's what Jesus is talking about here, being the narrow gate, that the only way is through him. The other thing he says is that it will be hard. And I think we all know that. But I think what he's also saying is more than just hard in the sense of there'll be trials and tribulations. What he's talking about is hard in the sense of it's hard to follow me. 
Like I'm really countercultural. Like it's hard to do the things that I'm asking you to do. And that's what he's saying here. So that's his, his first warning. Don't go by the easy way. There is no easy button. His second warning is beware tickled ears. Now, if you see that piece of scripture, and I'll just, just highlight maybe the first couple of verses for you. We're looking at verses 15 through 20 here. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. So I said, the reason I, th I think tickled ears is, is the appropriate. We could have said, beware false prophets. Okay. But why do we fall under the spell of false prophets? What is it that they say to us that we like to hear? We like to hear what they say because they kind of tickle our ears a little bit. They say things that we would like to want to hear. I think there's a guy named Dale Carnegie. He wrote a, a business book that I'm sure many of you are very familiar with, How to Win Friends and influence people. And one of the thing, things that Carnegie says in there is that the sweetest words to a person's ears are their first name, right? And there's some truth to that. We should be using each other's names as, as often as we can remember them, right? But we love to have our ears tickled. We love to hear things that sound good to us. And that's what false prophets do really well. And Jesus knew that. He knew that what a false prophet would do is say, hey, I'm going to take a little bit of truth, maybe even a lot of truth, and then what I'm going to do is mix in some falsehood. And I'm going to trick these people. I think a lot of times false prophets don't even realize that they're deceived themselves. But either way, it's our job to look out for them. And so just real briefly on this point, what, who are the false prophets today that we should keep an eye on here? And I think, you know, it's easy to sort of pick on... Um, you know, the health and wealth gospel, the name it and claim it, the prosperity gospel. I think for, for our church, for, for, for you all, I'm not sure that that's a, a significant threat. I really don't think it is. I think you know your Bible well enough to know that that's not really, I'm not concerned about that for you. But I think what, there's maybe two others that I am slightly concerned about. And the first would be one, a false gospel, a false teaching that tells you that Yes, you give your life to Jesus, you follow him, but you need to do some other things as well. You need to eat a certain way. You need to wear a certain kind of clothes. You need to school your children in a certain kind of way to really be in God's inner circle. That's a false gospel, brothers and sisters. We need to watch out for that in our own lives. Watch out for it in each other's as well. And the other one I would tell you is the gospel of the individual. You know, we talk about that a lot, I think, from this, this pulpit, this idea that in order to be a fully actualized human being, you need to express everything that you feel, right? You need to be able to express everything that you're feeling on the inside. That's what it means to really be human. That's what it means to live the fulfilled life. Brothers and sisters, that is a grave error. And it does, in fact, lead to destruction. And so we need to watch out for that. God has told us who we are. God has told us what he wants from us and what life should look like. It does not come from within us. It comes from his word. 
So we need to beware of false prophets that would tell us, oh, the way to be who you really are is to trust what's on the inside. Hogwash. Call that out. The last warning that Jesus gives is beware empty works. Beware of empty works. And i got to be honest. I think if you read, let me read this to you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I think that's pretty scary. And I think if you're not a little scared by that passage, I think you probably should be. Right? What we're talking about here is we are easily deceived. Jesus is warning us, don't think that because you do all these works for me that you ever actually knew me. What Jesus is saying is, I don't want your works. I want you. I want you to love me. The works will follow. They're going to come. But I want you. I don't want you to do stuff for me. So those are our three warnings from uh, our teacher, uh, Jesus, here on the Sermon on the Mount. If I'd ask you this question, if I said, okay, you've never read the Sermon on the Mount before, you don't know how it ends, the Sermon on the Mount. You don't know how he's going to conclude this thing, but you know that after uh, hearing the, the golden rule in, in verse 12, that Jesus is going to wrap this, wrap this thing up. He's going to land the airplane. How do you think, if you didn't know this stuff, you didn't know it was here, how do you think he might do that? Here's what I think. In our current context, in our current sort of cultural moment, I think we might say something, oh, I think Jesus will probably say something like, oh, God, really, he really loves you. He knows the plans that he has for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. We think he might say, disciple, you're never more loved. You'll never be more loved than you are right now. So isn't it interesting that instead of those kind of words of comfort that we might have expected, had we not known this was here already, that instead of that, what we get is warning. Wow. Seems kind of harsh, maybe even a little bit. But is there nothing more loving than a parent who warns his or her child, don't touch the hot stove, it'll burn you. Is there nothing more loving than look both ways before you cross the street? That's what Jesus, Jesus is actually, here's what I think is so beautiful here. Jesus is showing us his heart for us and how much he loves us by warning us of these things. Look out for these things. I don't want you to be destroyed. I want you to have the full life in me. So the, those are our three warnings that Jesus concludes with. And then that brings us now to our, our word picture, which Jay read for us from verses 24 through, through 27. I'm going to read them for you again. I just think it's worthwhile. This is really, we're going to spend, we've got another 30 minutes here. We're going to spend the next 30 minutes on this. Um, 
So let me just read this for you. And I'll just say this in preface of reading. If you came this morning hoping to hear, like, man, I want to hear something I've never heard before, you're going to be really disappointed. <laughs> okay? Like, it's, so Jesus says a lot of parables. We know that, right? He tells a lot of stories and parables to describe things about the kingdom. And sometimes the disciples would come to him afterwards and say, what were you talking about? Like, we had no idea what you meant there, Jesus. It's really clear here, though. Jesus is making it very clear what he's talking about. So let's read from from Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man, build his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man build his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, we all know it doesn't take a a rocket scientist to understand that to, to have a solid building, you need to build on a solid foundation. I mean, think only of, we've all seen a picture, I'm sure, of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, right? That thing is, uh, it's 183 feet tall, and it actually, they, they started building it in the 12th century, and it took them two centuries, over 200 years, to build the Leaning Tower of Pisa. It wasn't because it was that tall. They knew how to make big buildings back then. The problem was, like 50 years into building it, the thing started to lean already, and they had to stop and figure out how to shore up the foundation, and how are we going to keep this thing from leaning? Kept building, more lean. Eventually, they finished it, as I said, two, two, uh, two centuries later. That thing has so much lean. If you stood at the bottom of the, the side where there's the greatest lean, and you looked up, it would be, the, the top of the tower would be about 13 feet out, out over the top of you. It leans that far over. And so they just didn't know what they were building on. They only went, actually, three meters deep. They went nine feet deep to build that tower. They didn't know what the soil was like. We've actually got foundation issues closer here to home. Um, when Eliza and I first moved out here in 2008, um, we moved over sort of on kind of the west side of town. For those familiar, King Carroll uh, Ranch is, is where we lived, and um, that's Jefferson County. We, uh, we looked at many, many homes. We found one we, we fell in love with. We went back to it to, before we did, wrote an offer, and, um, and as we're going through again, the realtor says, you know, one thing that's really great about this house is I, I don't I don't see any foundation issues here. And everything seems really solid, not a lot of cracks and so forth. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I would hope so. Like, that's normal, right? Like, shouldn't it have a solid foundation? And so anyhow, we, we, we got the house. And, um, you know, we get, we're getting moved in. We're, we're getting to know our neighbors and our neighborhood. We're walking around. And we're noticing as we walk around, like, man, that, that garage door doesn't really shut all the way. There's like a, on this side, it's shut. But on this side, there's like a six-inch gap. And why is everybody's driveway like totally buckled? And you know, when we drive down the street, it's like driving down a wave. Like what is going on around here? Well, come to find out, there's something in Colorado soil, specifically on that Jefferson County, that part of Jefferson County has more of it than really anywhere else. It's called bentonite. And bentonite is a, it's something that's in the clay. And when it's exposed to water, it expands with incredible force. Like, 30,000 pounds per square inch of force is what this material expands by. That's, that's a lot, 
case you weren't sure. And so um, it, it made sense then. We went across the street to our neighbor's house, and they had us over for something, and we're walking through uh, their house. We get to the kitchen, and it sloped so badly. The kitchen did from the front to the back of their house. It, it felt like we were in a fun house. Like, I mean, it was really, really bad. So bad, actually, that uh, was this area that the builder, he got sued by a bunch of people who bought homes there. He had to set up a trust fund for people to be able to repair their foundations in that neighborhood. Tens of thousands of dollars, strange things called helical piers had to be installed to, to, uh, to, uh, to shore up these foundations. This school, Schaefer Elementary School, for those that know that area, Schaefer Elementary School is the elementary that, Jefferson County Elementary School that serves that neighborhood. The building that you see there today, it's not the original building. The original building was built on this terrible soil, and it was a complete mess. They could, there were doors that you couldn't open and close. The hallways rippled like this. It was, so they tore it down and built an entire new building. So what are the things that, that, um, that, these, that these situations have in common? The, what they have in common is this. These building sites, they actually looked suitable. They looked good. There didn't appear to be any problems. The builders followed sort of normal protocols, right? They dug the dirt out. They, they poured a foundation. They built the house on that foundation. It was only later that they learned about this bentonite in the soil. And so what can we learn from this? And I would say in our lives, it's really no different. And that's Jesus's point here. It's no different in our lives. We've got to build our lives on something solid and unchanging. Or like the homes that are built on bentonite, we're gonna be heaved to and fro, right? And when we look inward in our lives, it's gonna be a house of a funhouse of distorted mirrors where we're never really going to be able to see and understand the truth. And the storms of life are going to come and, and, and batter us. So that brings me to the first point in our outline then and in, in, uh, underneath the um, word picture. So the first point there under word picture is who's building? So who's building? Everyone. Everyone is building their life on something. That's the answer to that question. There's nobody in this room who thinks that they're just sort of free and that they're not um, captured, frankly, by something. We're all building our lives on something. And we're industrious people. We're always building. Eliza and I went for a walk recently um, behind our house. There's a new development um, where they're building homes. And um, as we walk past, past this house, it's about halfway done. There's just construction material strewn all about the yard. And I mean, it's just a complete mess. And I said to her, I said, you know, in six months from now, this is going to be a beautiful front yard. There'll be a driveway. They might even have a patio. Maybe they'll lay some sod down, plant some trees and some shrubbery. Like, we as humans, we're industrious people. We, we know how to and we love to make order out of chaos, some more than others, but to one degree or another, human beings, we all love to make order out of chaos. And it's the same thing, even, you know, you could take that example of the, the homeowner construction behind our house. It's true also in our inner lives. We're constantly trying to take the things that come at us, and we're trying to make sense of those things. We're trying to bring order from chaos. 
And that's what we call a worldview. Okay, that's what we call a worldview. A worldview is, is kind of how you think about life and how you sort of, for lack of a better term, how you think about life. And it's really important that we identify our worldview. What drives us? So there's, a th there's three questions under this idea of like who's building. Well, we're all building. Well, what are we building on? So we can do some diagnostic questions. Three questions. The first one is this. How do you spend your time? How do you spend your time? I think as I've gone farther in life, I've come to say and truly believe time is more valuable than money. How you spend your time says a lot about your worldview. But how you spend your money, that's the second question. How you spend your money says a lot about your worldview and what you think is important. How you sort of filter and make sense of the world around you. And then the last question is this, is where do you go to find security? What are you taking security in? What are you building your life on? I mean, there's a number of different things, right? I'm building my life on being a really good person. Like, I'm just really nice to other people. I look out for them. I take care of them. I'm generous. That's great. All right? What about this? What about family? Do you find your security and your family and relationships? Like, oh, I'm so thankful that I've got, you know, a loving mother and father. I've got great sisters and brothers. My Spouse loves me, grandparents, this is my friends, this is so great. I'm so thankful that I have all of them. That's what really matters to me. Family, family, I hear this all the time in the workplace. Family comes first. What about work? Speaking of the workplace, what about work? Some of us love to find our security in our jobs, men in particular. I'm not trying to pick on you, it's just true. And we take a good thing and make it the best thing. All right? What about money? I mean, that's an easy one to pick on, but it's true as well. I think in some ways, it's, I don't want to say it's a peculiarly Western issue, uh, but there's certainly in other cultures, the idea that you would save and then be able to retire someday and have like a, a piggy bank or a security blanket, like that's a completely foreign concept to most of the world. It's in some ways sort of a uniquely Western deal that we have here, right? And so um, for them, it's a little bit different, but for us, it's very real. My 401, my 403B, my savings account. I sure hope Social Security is there when I retire. We'll see. You know, what are we putting our security in? Here's two that, might, that, are, that are a little different, but I think they're appropriate. What about your doctrine? We got, I mean, I love, I love that we love our doctrine at Orchard Bible. I really do, and I love it too. I mean, I have bookshelves full of this stuff, right? I mean, not as many as Lars, but <laughs> I've got a lot. And so uh, I, I love that stuff, but is that like, and, and thinking rightly, right? Like, like I want to rightly divide God's word. I want to parse it and get it just perfect. Could that give us a, a sense of security? Maybe. And what about our, what about our ministry? It's kind of tied back to that third warning. What about our ministry? You know, our works, the things that we're doing around the church. Could that give us a sense of security? Here's the thing with all of these that I've offered to you, and you know where I'm going with this. 
All of these are just going to give you, they will give you a sense of security, to be sure. But the question is, when the storms of life come, will they still be there? Right? Will your job still be there? Will your money still be there? Remember that story that Jesus tells about the, the farmer, or maybe it was a rancher, we'll make it more Colorado, the rancher who had a, uh, just done super well in his business. He's like, man, my barns can't hold all this stuff. I need to build bigger barns. And then what does Jesus say? Fool, tonight God will require your life of you. So all of these things, while giving some semblance of security, none of them can offer the real security that we need. So that takes us to our next point. So everybody's building. That's the answer to that first question. The second question is, on what do we build? Now, this is your chance. I will say this. This is your chance today to give the Sunday school answer and to be absolutely right. <laughs> and you can literally, you can just say, Jesus, and you've got this one right, okay? Because um, that's the right answer here. What do we want to be building on? We need to be building our lives on Jesus Christ, the solid rock. But what specifically? Okay, great, Ben, that's great. Oh, man, I feel warm. But what does that actually mean? What does it actually mean? Well, here's where it starts. And we sang it. Man, I love the songs that we sang this morning. We sang it this morning. It starts with his righteousness. Because here's the bottom line. Outside and in, our, in ourselves, we don't have the righteousness that we need. We're not able to do that. In fact, let's just, let's just use, we could go all over the Bible to prove this, but let's just stay right in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes or Pharisees, what does he say? Well, you'll, you'll probably still get in. No. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that might not mean a lot to you, but if you were a disciple standing there listening to Jesus give this Sermon on the Mount, you'd say, how is that possible? If there's one group of people that should be, like, for sure in eternity with heaven, it's got to be the scribes. If, they, if they're not going to get in, who's getting in? But Jesus said that for a reason. He said that because he knows and he knew that our righteousness on its own is not enough. Even the scribes and Pharisees, their righteousness was not enough. God's standard is absolute perfection. And being an Adam and Eve, being an Adam is kind of our federal head over all of the human race. We sinned in him. So nobody is perfect. We actually talked about it this morning at the Lord's Supper. Nobody is perfect. So we need a righteousness that we don't have, and that righteousness, the only way we can gain that, of course, is through Jesus. That's why the Sunday school answer is correct here. The only way that we can be righteous is through Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made Jesus, so the verse actually reads, for our sake, he made him, to be sin who knew no sin. Right? So he... What is, what, is, what is Paul saying there in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21? What's he saying? He's saying he took our sin and actually put it onto Jesus, put it in Jesus' account. And then on the cross, 
So we talk about the cross. We talk about Jesus' death. We talk about his blood. All the same idea, okay? Kind of use those terms interchangeably. At that time and at that place, he put our sin on Jesus. And Jesus took the punishment, the just and right punishment for our sin, our rebellion against God. He took that punishment. And finishing verse, uh, 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 finishing his verse here, so that in him, this is so beautiful, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's what we need. That's the beginning of building your life on a foundation that's unshakable. It's unchanging. It's immovable. There's no bentonite in that foundation. And I love what Paul says as he thinks about this, this concept of righteousness. He writes this to the uh, church in Philippi. It's in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the... <laughs> and so hold on. Everything is loss. Guys, he had a lot. He was a, Fer he was a Jew's Jew. He was a Pharisee. Like, he was on the track. He was trained by Gamaliel, one of the top Pharisees in all of Israel. Maybe someday Paul was going to be like Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. He had it all. His family probably loved him. What does he say here? I count everything, all that stuff, my reputation, what I've been born into, all of those things, I count it completely as loss. Why? For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And here's the key piece. So he's gaining Christ. And what does he say in verse 9? And to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from trying to do good, right? But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So what we're talking about here is a, is a kind of a Bible term of justification, that exchange of our sin for Jesus' righteousness, that we might be seen as righteous by God in Jesus. And that's the beginning of that foundation that we build. But it's, that's it. That's the point, is it's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. We're continually building, right? We're continually working. We're continually building. And that's that process of another Bible word here, sanctification. So that takes us to our next question on what should we build? Jesus, the solid rock. How do we build is our next question. Three L's. We listen to him. We live according to his word, and we look to him. And this is right from his passage, right? Exactly what he tells us, right? He says in verse 24, everyone who hears these words and does them, right? Everyone who hears these words and does them. So we listen to his word. Now, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, you could think that he's just talking about just the sermon. But of course, what he means is all of Scripture. All of Scripture is inspired by God. Right? All of Scripture is profitable for teaching, for correction, for rebuke, and for training in righteousness. So it's important that we listen to his word. It's also important that we learn his word. But of course, that's not enough. We need to live by his word. 
One of my favorite books in the entire scriptures is the book of James, right? James is, um, James is not a man of, of nuance, let's say. He's a pretty direct guy. Um, he, really, he really, I think, has a, a way of sort of ruffling feathers. I mean, if you take him at his word, if you read it as it's meant to be read, it should be pretty challenging. And if there's one verse that you could say summarizes all of the book of James, it would be chapter 1 and verse 22. Be doers of the word, and not merely hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word, and not merely hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It's great to hear. It's great to learn. We, absolutely, we have to do that first. Right? But if it stops there, that's problematic. Jesus puts it in, in as, as Jesus would, maybe a little bit more gently than James does. He's in his upper room with his disciples, and it's, it's the night before he's um, going to be crucified, and this is really sort of his goodbye to his disciples. So we're, we're in, you know, uh, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 of John. In chapter 14, no less than three times, no less than three times, does Jesus say that loving him equals obedience. John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verses 23 and 24, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So we listen to his word, we learn it, we live by it, so we show him that we love him. Right? That's how we continue to build our lives on the solid foundation of Jesus. But the last thing we do is we look to him. We look to him. We just started, I learned to ski as a kid in Ohio, which means um, for anybody else from the Midwest, you know what I'm talking about. Um, to use the word skiing to describe what I did in Ohio compared to uh, how it is out here is a little unfair, but we were skiing. And what that meant for me is that basically one trip a year with my, with my youth group actually is what we would do. It was a three-day trip to upstate New York, ski for three days. The first day, was, every year was like kind of a total mess. I'm relearning. Second day, I'm getting, you know, okay, kind of getting the hang, getting my legs back underneath me. And by the third day, I'm like doing pretty decent. But then that would be it. And I would have to kind of restart, you know, every year. Well, we've been fortunate enough these last few years here in Colorado to, to ski quite a bit. And it's been, it's been really, really great, a great family activity. But um, I would say there's been a real breakthrough. As we've skied more frequently, I've been able to, to learn. And there was a real, I would say, as again, breakthrough or paradigm shift in my skiing, and, and, and that's when this occurred. So when I was skiing before, I kind of was pretty tentative. I was looking down. I was looking at my tips. I didn't want my tips to cross, right? I, and, then, and then I got a little more confident, so then I'm looking out in front of my skis a little bit, maybe five or ten feet, because I didn't want to hit a piece of snow that was going to cause me to, you know, to be, be a little unstable. So I just want to know what's coming next. I'm looking down, you know, kind of thing. But the quantum leap occurred when I lifted my eyes up. And I actually looked pretty far down the mountain. I'm like, I'm going there. I'm directing my energy down the mountain, not right here in front of me. 
And I think that's actually a really good parallel for life in Christ and and what it means to actually build your house on him. If we're looking down, if we're continually looking down at our sin, if we're continually looking down at our circumstances around us, we're going to miss what Jesus actually wants us to do, which is to look at him and to focus on him. I mean, it sounds so simple, but I actually think it's very true. And what I learned as I was skiing is I lifted my eyes up. Yeah, I'd hit bumps, but it didn't matter. It was because I was focused way out in front, 50 yards, 100 yards down the mountain kind of thing. And it's, I think it's the same thing in our spiritual life. As we do that, as we focus on Jesus, yeah, we're going to hit bumps. But I don't think, we might not even notice them. And even when we do notice them, I don't think they'll be as bad as they might have felt before. So we need to listen to him, we need to live by his word, and we need to look unto him. Now I just want to, um, but before we move on to the last question, answer the last question, why? I just want to say, and this kind of ties back into where do we find our security? You might say, where do we find our, our identity? This isn't about adding Jesus to your life. Like, I think that's probably, that's a huge risk. It's really, really easy to add Jesus to who you kind of are already and what you do already. Like, to continue to put your security in other things, but also have Jesus as kind of also a security sort of blanket, if you will. But that doesn't really work. That's not what he's asking of us here. That's not what he's telling us here. So what the, what the builders figured out over there in Jefferson County when they were building on Bentonite is that you, you, can't, you can't build on Bentonite. I mean, you can do some really expensive stuff to shore up the foundation as part of this construction process. But what they figured out is you basically have to remove all of the soil, the bad soil, and replace it with good soil. And I think it's the same in our spiritual life. Like, we can't think that we're actually going to be on a solid foundation if we don't go about getting rid of sin in our life. It just doesn't work that way. It's like uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 about the old man and the new man, right? He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and its corrupt, deceitful desires. Get rid of the old dirt. Move it out. And then he says in verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds in verse 24, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. That's what we're talking about here. It's a removing of the old and replacing of the new and that foundation in Jesus. So there's some hard questions here um, that I've asked today for sure. But this is what I would tell you is that Jesus doesn't leave us to do it alone. He's definitely not opposed to our effort, okay? He's opposed to our earning. He's not opposed to our effort, but he doesn't leave us in our effort alone. What does he say? He said in the same thing in that upper room discourse with his disciples, what does he say to you? Say to them, it's actually really wild. It's not what you would expect him to say. He says, it's actually good that I'm going to leave you. Why is it good, Jesus, that you would leave us? Because... If I don't leave you, then you're not going to get the helper. And to have the helper is actually better than to be bodily with me. Wow. 
The helper, of course, is the Holy Spirit. So by Jesus going, we actually have his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit will help us. And of course, Jesus doesn't leave us to do it alone. He also gives us the church. You know, there was a plug for home groups. I'm the pastor over home groups. I want to see every single last one of you in a home group. Why? Because that is how, when we're on that rock of Jesus, and the storms of life come, we need Jesus, but brothers and sisters, we need each other as well, without a doubt. So then let's answer our last question. Why build? Why build? Well, we've talked about, we use this, I use this analogy of the bentonite being poor soil and a bad foundation and all, kind of all that good stuff. But, you know, the, and that's definitely, a, certainly a part of it. But the other part of it is that we know storms in life are coming. And, um, and we know that, that uh, in a lot of ways, and I'm not trying to scare you by saying this, but I, I think we all know this is true. Significant change for the bad is just one phone call away. It's just one phone call away. I mean, the chances of something like that happening are really, really slim. Like, that's most likely that's not going to happen. But it is a possibility, and it does happen. And so the question then is, will you be ready? Will you be ready? Lily, if you could put that slide up, please. So this is Mexico City. This is right where Hurricane Michael kind of touched down. And um, the, uh, the owner of this home here, the journalist came and, and uh, interviewed him, and he said this. Um, he says, to others looking to build their dream beach home, Lackey, this is the gentleman's last name, Lackey recommends studying, quote, the environment where you are. Study in the environment where you are. And take whatever you hear and expect it to be worse than that. And if you want to have it last, build it above and beyond. So this is the house that this guy built. The question is, what kind of house are we building? And I would say this. Even if you come, this is my testimony, okay? Even if you come to Jesus, frankly, out of fear. Like, I don't, like, I want to be able to get through the storms of life. I, not only that, I'm afraid of God's wrath against my sin. And if something were to happen to me on the car ride home from church, this is literally how my thinking went. I want to know that I'm in Christ. That's how I came to Christ. But here's what's amazing. And he'll, friend, if that's where you are right now, he wants you. He wants you. But here's the beautiful part, and this is also part of my testimony. The beautiful part is, is that he won't leave you there. He's going to reveal himself as more beautiful and more wonderful than you could ever imagine. And so you may have come to him for security. You may have come to him to, to be able to weather the storms of life, and you will. But what's even better is that you will get him. You'll get him, which is a, it's the best thing that you could ever have. So this morning is an invitation to evaluate what you're building on and how you're building, where you're looking to build. As we said, everyone is building, right? The question is on what and on how. And I would just say this, if you're building your life on shifting sand, 
The storms of life will be devastating, and even more importantly, God's wrath ultimately against your sin will be even more devastating. Your inner life is going to be unanchored and full of a funhouse of mirrors distorting the truth. You'll be unanchored. But through repentance and faith in Jesus, you can know and build a life on the solid rock of him. And I invite you to do so today. Please stand with me as we pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you are our solid rock. The the storms of life um, are very real. Some of us here this morning are right in the middle of these storms. And I just pray, Father, that you would reveal yourself even more. Um, Lord, we know that in times of suffering, it's really hard to pick our eyes up and look. When we're in pain, it's hard to think about anything other than the pain. We forget what it was like to feel good, to feel normal. And I would just pray in particular for those among us here this morning that are in that place right now, God, that you would indeed comfort them, that you would, if, it, if, if only for a moment, you would help them to lift their eyes and to see Jesus, how wonderful, how blessed he is, how precious he is, how much he loves them. And Lord, help us as a church to encourage one another in these ways. And if there be anyone here this morning that does not know your son Jesus, that has not repented and trusted on him, I pray that they would do that, that they would seriously consider your son Jesus for the foundation of their life. We pray these things in his name. Amen.